Today I'm doing chapter five, the reality of abstractions. Here we learn about the fact that there's not only physical material in the universe, but rather there's also some other kind of part to reality. Namely, there are abstractions, and these abstractions can have real causal effects on physical things like atoms. The reason why something like that ends up taking the shape that it does has nothing to do with self-organisation and physical forces. It cannot be explained purely in terms of the motion of atoms. And it can't be reduced to laws of motion or any kind of law of physics. Instead, the explanation is that a great architect called Gaudi, some 100 years ago, decided to create something like that. The idea was originally represented inside of his mind. The idea was originally some kind of neural firings inside of his brain, but they can't be reduced to that either. It was an idea, an abstract idea. He had plans, he put it down on paper, and then over many, many years, it's beginning to take form or beginning to be instantiated in the rock and stone and mortar and other materials that make up an absolutely phenomenal building like this one. It's only partially complete and apparently it's going to be some decades before it finally is. This is in Barcelona, Spain. So with a great building, something like Gaudi's Cathedral, what we have is an idea that has somehow taken physical form. And this brings us to a kind of dualism. It really is the notion that in reality, there are two ways of speaking about what exists. Certainly, material things exist. But that's not all that exists. Because the material things can be arranged into particular patterns. And in particular, what we can have is kinds of patterns we call these ideas. Ideas are things that can be instantiated within physical substrates. And whether that physical substrate happens to be ink on paper, or electrical signals in the brain, or indeed messages inside of a computer, the point is that these ideas are something over and above the mere atoms, the particles, the physical things. So there really are two kinds of things in reality. There's physical things, stuff made out of atoms, and there's abstract things, patterns within those atoms. We can have ideas about things like mathematics, which refer to abstract entities themselves. So these are abstract concepts about other abstract concepts. There can be things like physical laws, the explanation of physical laws is itself an abstract concept. So a realist is committed to the idea that abstract things exist, that there are two kinds of existence in reality, physical things and abstract things. This doesn't commit us to any kind of woo or supernatural kind of force or spirituality. All that it says is that the way in which physical things are arranged is not haphazard, it's not chaotic. There's something more to it. And even more profound, the abstract things can cause things to occur in physics. The abstract things can cause stuff to happen. They really are the proximate and indeed ultimate cause 
of many kinds of events that happen in the universe, particularly when it comes to people. So let's read a little from chapter 5, the beginning of infinity, called The Reality of Abstractions. And we'll see what David has to say about how abstract things cause stuff to happen and how they are the explanation of things happening in physical reality. He writes, The fundamental theories of modern physics explain the world in jarringly counterintuitive ways. For example, most physicists consider it self-evident that when you hold your arm out horizontally, you can feel the force of gravity pulling it downwards. But you cannot. The existence of a force of gravity is, astonishingly, denied by Einstein's general theory of relativity, one of the two deepest theories of physics. I'll pause there, this is me speaking. I read a little about this on my website. You can go, go to www.breadhall.org and there's a section there on general relativity and it speaks about why gravity is indeed not a force. So you can Google that. Gravity is not a force, I think is the name of the article. I'll continue. David writes, This says that the only force on your arm in that situation is the one which you yourself are exerting upwards to keep it constantly accelerating away from the straightest possible path in a curved region of space-time. The reality described by our other deepest theory, quantum theory, which I shall describe in chapter 11, is even more counterintuitive. To understand explanations like those, physicists have to learn to think about everyday events in new ways. The guiding principle is, as always, to reject bad explanations in favour of good ones. In regard to what is or is not real, this leads to the requirement that if an entity is referred to by our best explanation in the relevant field, we must regard it as really existing. I'll pause there. This harks back to a section right at the beginning in one of the early chapters of The Fabric of Reality, the criteria for existence. And the criteria of existence is said right there. How do we know if something actually exists in reality? Well, the way in which we know it exists is not via our senses. It's not via uh, us being able to detect it by seeing it or hearing it. That's not what we mean by something actually existing because our senses are fallible. We can make mistakes, we can see things that aren't really there, we can hallucinate, things can go wrong. Things can still go wrong with our explanations, but the best way to decide whether or not something actually exists is whether or not it is referred to by our best explanations, is what David says. So our best explanation of how matter works requires us to believe, believe requires us to invoke the existence of atoms, of particles. And those particles are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So we're committed to the idea that electrons really do exist. We can't get away with explaining physical reality without referring to electrons. Now, when it comes to something like ghosts, well, none of our best explanations of anything require us to speak in terms of ghosts. People might think they've seen ghosts, but that is not a good explanation. Usually in those situations, what has happened is that people have simply made mistakes. So let's continue. Furthermore, everyday events are stupendously complex when expressed in terms of fundamental physics. If you fill a kettle with water and switch it on, all the supercomputers on Earth, working for the age of the universe, could not solve the equations that predict what all those water molecules will do. Even if we could somehow determine their initial state and that of all the outside influences on them, which itself is an intractable task. Sorry, just had to move my camera there a little bit. Okay, let's continue. 
Fortunately, some of that complexity resolves itself into a higher level simplicity. For example, we can predict with some accuracy how long the water will take to boil. To do so, we need only a few physical quantities that are quite easy to measure, such as its mass, the power of the heating element, and so on. For greater accuracy, we may also need information about subtler properties, such as the number and type of nucleation sites for bubbles. But these are still relatively high-level phenomena, composed of intractably large numbers of interacting atomic-level phenomena. Thus, there is a class of high-level phenomena, including the liquidity of the water and the relationship between containers, heating elements, boiling and bubbles, that can be explained, that can be well explained in terms of each other alone with no direct reference to anything at the atomic level or below. In other words, the behaviour of that whole class of high-level phenomena is quasi-autonomous, almost self-contained. This resolution into explicability at a higher quasi-autonomous level is known as emergence. So we'll just pause there. He introduces the concept of emergence, which many science popularizes and many scientists have written about over the years, often in the quite confused way, but this is exceptionally clear. It, there's nothing particularly mysterious about emergent phenomena, except that they exist. <laughs> that somehow the laws of physics are such that particles arrange themselves in ways that give rise to higher level simplicity and that higher level simplicity obeys its own laws. It doesn't violate, it's not possible for it to violate the laws of physics. So when we say it obeys its own laws, that doesn't mean in contradiction to the laws of physics. It simply means these higher level laws themselves emerge and govern the behavior of those higher level simple structures. So let's continue. He writes, emergent phenomena are a tiny minority. We can predict when the water will boil and that the bubbles will form when it does. But if you wanted to predict where each bubble will go, or to be precise, what the probabilities of its various possible motions are, see chapter 11, you would be out of luck. Still less, it is feasible to predict the countless microscopically defined properties of the water, such as whether an odd or even number of its electrons will be affected by the heating during any given period. Okay, so I'll pause there uh, and just refer you to, this is a little self-indulgent, to another one of my articles, this one about free will. And I think it's important to note here that I regard free will as a kind of emergent simplicity. When people say that free will isn't possible because the laws of physics already mandate what is going to happen in the universe, in other words, everything is already determined, it simply ignores the fact that there is such a thing as really existing emergent phenomena. So we cannot escape from the fact that the laws of physics govern all things that happen in the universe. But that doesn't mean that you can't have higher order simplicity. Things like people making choices. And so this is my attempt to explain free will in terms of this higher level simple structure. So again, you can look up Brett Hall, uh, emergence and free will. So I'll, I'll continue. Okay, I'm skipping a little. And he writes, The behavior of high-level physical quantities consists of nothing but the behavior of their low-level constituents, with most of the details ignored. 
This has given rise to a widespread misconception about emergence and explanation known as reductionism. The doctrine that science always explains and predicts things reductively, i.e. by analysing them into components. Often it does, as we will use the fact that interatomic forces obey the law of conservation of energy to make and explain a high-level prediction that the kettle cannot boil water without a power supply. But reductionism requires that the, ex that the relationship between different levels of explanation always have to be like that, and often it is not. For example, as I wrote in The Fabric of Reality, consider one particular copper atom at the tip of the nose of the statue of Sir Winston Churchill that stands in Parliament Square in London. Now, I'm not going to read that passage. I would just encourage everyone to grab the fabric of reality or grab the beginning of infinity and, and read that for themselves. This might seem ironic that I'm reading passages and I'm not going to read one of my favourite passages in both books. And it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant passage because it it articulates in a very profound way the difference between reductionism as a dogma and how we go about actually explaining what happens in the universe. Not everything is explicable in terms of the laws of physics. And I'm not going to read the passage, but I'll give you a flavour of what the passage is. It's this idea that if you want to explain where a particular copper atom is, that if it's at the nose of the statue of Winston Churchill, then trying to explain the position of that copper atom in terms of laws of motion and initial conditions stretching back to the Big Bang in order to try and predict that the copper atom is being bumped um, in sequence over and again until such time as it arrives at the tip of the nose of Winston Churchill, you don't explain anything. However, if instead you talk about the copper atom as being part of a brass statue, and statues are made out of brass so that they don't corrode away, and we like to make statues of important people like Winston Churchill, who prevented the Second World War from being uh, a victory for the Nazis, that is an explanation. Why is the copper atom there? Well, cop the copper atom is there because it's part of brass, and brass is there because we make statues out of it. We make statues out of it because we like to remember important historical figures. That's the explanation of why the copper atom is there. And that is an actual explanation as to why. But you won't get the why if you say, oh, well, it's the laws of physics. It is just determined that the copper atom was going to be there. And in precisely the same way, if you try and explain what people do if you attempt to explain it in terms of deterministic laws, then you ignore the high-level causative structure that exists in the universe, namely emergence. And one of the most parsimonious ways to explain why people choose to do one thing or the other is free will. If you try and say, well, they were compelled to do that in the first place because there are these lower-level laws, be they laws of neuroscience or neurobiology, or even deeper, the laws of physics, you're missing the difference between explanation and prediction. And although an oracle who has access to the perfect laws of physics and the initial conditions would be able to predict what people do, in other words, their behaviour is perfectly determined in the same way that the copper atom was perfectly determined to end up where it was, that predictive story is not an explanation. There's a difference. There's a really important difference. Okay, so I'm skipping a bit and David goes through arguments against reductionism and then arguments against its mirror image called holism. 
this holism idea is something that the, uh, you often hear from um, you know, natural therapies type people. Uh, this idea that we should treat diseases of the body by looking at the entire body as a whole rather than focusing on a specific problem with the body. Um, so David criticizes all those and he writes, all those doctrines are irrational for the same reason. They advocate accepting or rejecting theories on grounds other than whether they are good explanations. Whenever a high-level explanation does follow logically from low-level ones, that also means that the high-level one implies something about the low-level ones. Thus, additional high-level theories, provided that they, were, uh, that they were all consistent, would place more and more constraints on what the low-level theories could be. So it could be that all the high-level explanations that exist taken together imply all the low-level ones, as well as vice versa. Or it could be that some low-level, some intermediate-level, and some high-level explanations taken together imply all explanations. I guess that that is so, he writes. Okay, so I'll pause there. So this is an interesting way of speaking about explanations and laws, if you like. There are these low-level laws of physics, but in a sense, they're constrained by what we learn about the way in which high-level explanations work. The high-level explanations, what we know about them, constrains what actually happens at the lower level or what we know about what happens at the lower level. We can't violate the laws of physics, but we also can't go violating just any old high-level explanation as well. The explanations work in both directions. Okay, so I'll continue. I'm skipping again a significant chunk here. He writes, in any case, emergent phenomena are essential to the explicability of the world. Long before humans had much explanatory knowledge, they were able to control nature by using rules of thumb. Rules of thumb have explanations, and those explanations were about high-level regularities among emergent phenomena, such as fire and rocks. Long before that, it was only genes that were encoding rules of thumb, and the knowledge in them too was about emergent phenomena. Thus, emergence is another beginning of infinity. All knowledge creation depends on, and physically consists of, emergent phenomena. Emergence is also responsible for the fact that discoveries can be made in successive steps, thus providing scope for the scientific method. The partial success of each theory in a sequence of improving theories is tantamount to the existence of a layer of phenomena that each theory explains successfully, though, as it then turns out, partly mistakenly. Successive scientific explanations are occasionally dissimilar in the way they explain their predictions, even in the domain where the predictions themselves are similar or identical. For instance, Einstein's explanation of planetary motion does not merely correct Newton's. It is radically different, denying, among other things, the very existence of central elements of Newton's explanation, such as the gravitational force and the uniformly flowing time with respect to which Newton defined motion. Likewise, the astronomer Johannes Kepler's theory which said that the planets move in ellipses did not merely correct the celestial sphere theory, it denied the sphere's existence. And Newton's did not substitute a new shape for Kepler's ellipses, but a whole new way for laws to specify motions through infinitesimally defined quantities like instantaneous velocity and acceleration. Thus, each of those theories of planetary motion was ignoring or denying its predecessor's basic means of explaining what was happening out there. This has been used as an argument for instrumentalism, as follows. Each successive theory made small but accurate corrections to what its predecessor predicted, and was therefore a better theory in that sense. 
But since each theory's explanation swept away that of the previous theory, the previous theory's explanation was never true in the first place. And so one cannot regard those successive explanations as constituting a growth of knowledge about reality. From Kepler to Newton to Einstein, we have successively no force needed to explain orbits, an inverse square law needed to responsible for every orbit, and again, no force needed. So how could Newton's force of gravity, as distinct from his equations predicting its effects, ever have been an advance in human knowledge? It could and was because sweeping away the entities through which a theory makes its explanation is not the same as sweeping away the whole of the explanation. Although there is no force of gravity, it is true that something real, the curvature of space-time, caused by the Sun has a strength that varies approximately according to Newton's inverse square law and affects the motion of objects, seen and unseen. Newton's theory also correctly explained that laws of gravitation are the same for terrestrial and celestial objects. It made a novel distinction between mass, the measure of an object's resistance to being accelerated, and weight, the force required to prevent an object from falling under gravity. And it said that the gravitational effect of an object depends on its mass and not other attributes, such as its density or composition. Later, Einstein's theory not only endorsed all those features, but explained, in turn, why they are so. Newton's theory, too, had been able to make more accurate predictions than its predecessors, precisely because it was more right than they were about what was really happening. Before that, even Kepler's explanation had included important elements of the true explanation. Planetary orbits are indeed determined by laws of nature. Those laws of nature are indeed the same for all planets, including Earth. They do invoke the Sun, they are mathematical and geometrical in character, and so on. With the hindsight provided by each successive theory, we can see not only where the previous theory made false predictions, but also that wherever it made true predictions, this was because it had expressed some truth about reality. So its truth lives on in the new theory. As Einstein remarked, there could be no fairer destiny for any physical theory, then it should point the way to a more comprehensive theory in which it lives on as a limiting case. I'll pause there. I've been engaged in some discussions recently about the existence of truth and whether or not it can be found. There's a school of philosophy called skepticism, and the skeptics seem to believe that we cannot obtain truth, or we cannot know when we've obtained truth. And this is why fallibilists don't think that, agree insofar as we cannot get to the final truth. But this doesn't mean we can't find any truth at all. What we have access to is provisional truth. And the reason we know we can have access to provisional truth is for the reasons articulated in the passage right there. So let me just reread a little bit um, where David has said, wherever it, the previous theory, made true predictions, this was because it had expressed some truth about reality. So true predictions, in other words, the prediction worked, but why did the prediction work? Well, the prediction worked because there must have been something about reality that the theory got correct. It doesn't mean it got the whole lot correct, but the fact that it did get it correct means it got something right, something true was stated. These things are synonyms as far as I'm concerned. We're just talking about the same thing. There's a reality out there and when we make statements about that reality that work, we've said something true. Now, we might not know precisely which part of the theory is true in, in, until sometime later, in retrospect. But 
we are able to get some of this truth sometimes. Not the final truth, not ultimate truth, provisional truth. Truth that works, truth that enables us to make progress. And the reason we make progress is because we are improving, by objective standards, our theories. I'm going to skip a little more and then uh, read a little more. David writes, and this is a sort of esoteric thing that philosophers of science like to talk about, but I will mention it. Um, so uh, he writes, by the way, it is something of a misconception that the predictions of successive theories of planetary motion were all that similar. Newton's predictions are indeed excellent in the context of bridge building and only slightly inadequate when running the global positioning system, but they are hopelessly wrong when explaining a pulsar or quasar or the universe as a whole. To get all those right, one needs Einstein's radically different explanations. Such large discontinuities in the meanings of successive scientific theories have no biological analogue. In an evolving species, the dominant strain of each generation differs only slightly from that in the previous generation. Nevertheless, scientific discovery is a gradual process too. It is just that in science, all the gradualness and nearly all the criticism and rejection of bad explanations takes place inside the scientists' minds. As Popper put it, we can let our theories die in our place. I'm skipping forward to the place where he gets to the meat of the matter, namely abstractions. And he writes, That brings me to the main subject of this chapter, abstractions. In chapter 4, I remarked that pieces of knowledge are abstract replicators that use, hence affect, organisms and brains to get themselves replicated. That is a higher level of explanation than the emergent levels I have mentioned so far. It is a claim that something abstract, something non-physical, such as knowledge in a gene or a theory, is affecting something physical. Again, this is one of those profound passages where it's no good uh, just reading it once. You really have to uh, meditate on that for a moment. So I just want to read that last sentence again. It is a claim that something abstract, something non-physical, such as the knowledge in a gene or a theory, is affecting something physical. He continues. Physically, nothing is happening in such a situation other than that one set of emergent entities such as genes or computers is affecting others, which is already anathema to reductionism. But abstractions are essential to a fuller explanation. You know that if your computer beats you at chess, it really is the program that has beaten you, not the silicon atoms or the computer as such. The abstract program is instantiated physically as a high-level behaviour of vast numbers of atoms, but the explanation of why it has beaten you cannot be expressed without also referring to the program in its own right. That program has also been instantiated, unchanged, in a long chain of different physical substrates, including neurons in the brains of the programmers, and radio waves when you download the program via wireless networking, and finally as states of long and short-term memory banks in your computer. The specifics of that chain of instantiations may be relevant to explaining how the program reached you, but it is irrelevant to why it beats you. There, the content of the knowledge in it and in you is the whole story. That story is an explanation that refers ineluctably to abstractions, and therefore those abstractions exist and really do affect physical objects in the way required by the explanation. The next section is a section that summarises part of Douglas Hofstadter's work. And I think it is a powerful 
excuse the pun, knockdown argument about the reality of abstractions. So I'll come back to that in a moment. So let's get to Hofstadter's argument. David writes, the computer scientist Douglas Hofstadter has a nice argument that this sort of explanation is essential in understanding certain phenomena. In his book, I Am a Strange Loop, 2007, he imagines a special purpose computer built of millions of dominoes. They are set up, as dominoes often are for fun, standing on end, close together, so that if one of them is knocked over, it strikes its neighbour, and so a whole stretch of dominoes falls one after another. But Hofstadter's dominoes are spring-loaded in such a way that, whenever one is knocked over, it pops back up after a fixed time. Hence, when a domino falls, a wave or signal of falling dominoes propagates along the stretch in the direction in which it fell until it reaches either a dead end or a currently fallen domino. By arranging these dominoes in a network with looping, bifurcating and rejoining stretches, one can make these signals combine and interact in a sufficiently rich repertoire of ways to make, a whole, to make the whole construction into a computer. A signal travelling down a stretch can be interpreted as a binary 1 and the lack of a signal as a binary 0, and the interactions between such signals can implement a repertoire of operations such as AND, OR and NOT, out of which arbitrary computations can be composed. One domino is designated as the ON switch. When it is knocked over, the domino computer begins to execute the program that is instantiated in its loops and stretches. The program in Hofstadter's thought experiment computes whether a given number is a prime or not. One inputs that number by placing a stretch of exactly that many dominoes at a specified position before tripping the ON switch. Elsewhere in the network, a particular domino will deliver the output of the computation. It will fall only if a divisor is found, indicating that the input was not prime. Hofstetter sets the input to number 641, which is a prime, and trips the on switch. Flurries of motion begin to sweep back and forth across the network. All 641 of the input dominoes soon fall as the computation reads its input and snap back up and participate in further intricate patterns. It is a lengthy process because this is a rather inefficient way to perform computations, but it does the job. Now, Hofstetter imagines that an observer who does not know the purpose of the domino network watches the dominoes performing and notices that one particular domino remains resolutely standing, never affected by any of the waves of downs and ups sweeping by. Right. Here David quotes a part of I Am A Strange Loop where Hofstetter writes, The observer points at that domino and asks with curiosity, how come that domino there is never falling? Back to BOI, beginning of infinity. We know that that is the output domino, but the observer does not. Hofstadter continues. Let me contrast two different types of answer that someone might give. The first type of answer, myopic to the point of silliness, would be, because its predecessor never falls, you dummy. And David writes, or if it has two or more neighbours, because none of its neighbours ever fall. Hofstadter writes, to be sure, this is as correct as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far. It just passes the buck to a different domino. Back to David. In fact, one could keep passing the buck from domino to domino to provide ever more detailed answers that were silly, but correct as far as they go. Eventually, one, ha one had passed the buck billions of times, many more times than there are dominoes because the program loops. One would arrive at the first domino, the on switch. 
At that point, the reductive to high-level physics explanation would be, in summary, that domino did not fall because none of the patterns of motion initiated by knocking over the on switch ever include it. But we knew that already. We can reach that conclusion, as we just have, without going through that laborious process. And it is undeniably true. But it is not the explanation we were looking for, because it is addressing a different question, predictive rather than explanatory. Namely, if the first domino falls, will the output domino ever fall? And it is asking at the wrong level of emergence. What we asked was, why does it not fall? To answer that, Hofstadter then adopts a different mode of explanation, at the right level of emergence, where Hofstadter writes, the second type of answer would be, because 641 is prime. Now this answer, while just as correct, indeed in some sense it is far more on the mark, has the curious property of not talking about anything physical at all. Not only has the focus moved upwards to collective properties, these properties somehow transcend the physical and have to do with pure abstractions, such as primality. End quote. David writes that Hofstadter concludes, the point of this example is that 641's primality is the best explanation, perhaps even the only explanation, for why certain dominoes did fall and certain others did not fall. Just to correct that slightly, David writes, the physics-based explanation is true as well, and the physics of the dominoes is also essential to explaining why prime numbers are relevant to that particular arrangement of them. But Hofstadter's argument does show that primality must be part of any full explanation of why the dominoes did or did not fall. Hence it is a refutation of reductionism in regards to abstractions, for the theory of prime numbers is not part of physics. It refers not to physical objects, but to abstract entities, such as numbers, of which there is an infinite set. I'll pause there. This is why I regard myself as a dualist. There is a single reality out there. This was the idea that Spinoza had. There's one reality. However, there are two kinds of real existing objects within that reality. There is stuff made of atoms, the physical world, and then there's stuff that's not made of atoms, the abstract world. There's nothing spiritual or spooky about the abstract world. It consists of things like numbers. And those numbers have properties. Those properties include things like whether they have multiple factors or not. If they don't, and they only have themselves and one as factors, then they have the property that they are prime numbers. In which case we have this rich class of structures out there in abstract reality that have relations among themselves, but more profoundly, the abstract entities can have causal effects on the physical world. Now, how do they have causal effects on the physical world? Because the physical world is organized in patterns in such a way that the abstract entities are instantiated within that physical reality and the relationships between the abstract entities are represented within the physical world. There's nothing mysterious here. There's no extra forces that are, that are required in order to push things around. We still have the same forces we do in physics. Now, the next part that David talks about is uh, a little bit within the wheelhouse of Sam Harris and a little bit within the wheelhouse of Buddhists, and sort of an interest of people who are interested in this question of personhood, which I certainly am, so I'm going to read that now. David writes, Unfortunately, in speaking about how Hofstadter has just distinguished between 
two kinds of really existing things, namely the physical and the abstract, David writes, unfortunately, Hofstetter goes on to disown his own argument and to embrace reductionism. Why? His book is primarily about one particular emergent phenomenon, the mind, or as he puts it, the I. He asks whether the mind can be consistently thought of as affecting the body, causing it to do one thing rather than another, given the all-embracing nature of the laws of physics. This is known as the mind-body problem. For instance, we often explain our actions in terms of choosing one action rather than another, but our bodies, including our brains, are completely controlled by the laws of physics, leaving no physical variable free for an eye to affect in order to make such a choice. Well, pause there. That's the determinism argument against free will. People who think that determinism is incompatible with free will. These people who think determinism is incompatible with free will tend to also think that determinism is incompatible with abstract entities. If abstract entities can have causal effects in the world, then the I, being an abstract entity, also cannot have uh, causal effects in the world. So these people would have it. But that's not possible. As we have seen, the dominoes fall down because the abstract concept of primality is the explanation as to why a particular domino did or did not fall. So I'll continue with the beginning of infinity. Following the philosopher Daniel Dennett, Hofstetter eventually concludes that the eye is an illusion. Minds, he concludes, can't push material stuff around because physical law alone would not suffice to determine its behavior, hence his reductionism. And now David writes something very, very important. He writes, But first of all, physical laws can't push anything either. They only explain and predict. And they are not our only explanations. The theory that the domino stands because 641 is prime, and because the domino network instantiates a primality testing algorithm, is an exceedingly good explanation. What is wrong with it? It does not contradict the laws of physics. It explains more than any explanation purely in terms of those laws, and no known variant of it can do the same job. Second, that reductionist argument would deny that an atom can push, in the sense of cause to move, another atom, since the initial state of the universe, together with the laws of motion, has already determined the state at every other time. Third, the very idea of causes emergent and abstract. It is mentioned nowhere in the laws of motion of elementary particles, and as the philosopher David Hume pointed out, we cannot perceive causation, only a succession of events. Also, the laws of motion are conservative. That is to say, they do not lose information. That means that just as they determine the final state of any motion given the initial state, they also, given, they also determine the initial state given the final state. And the state at any time from the state at any other time. So at that level of explanation, cause and effect are interchangeable and are not what we mean when we say that a program causes a computer to win at chess, or that a domino remains standing because 641 is prime. There is no inconsistency in having multiple explanations of the same phenomenon. At different levels of emergence, regarding microphysical explanations as more fundamental than emergent ones is arbitrary and fallacious. There is no escape from Hofstadter's 641 argument and no reason to want one. The world may or may not be as we wish it to be, and to reject good explanations on that account is to imprison oneself in parochial error. So the answer, because 641 is prime, does explain the immunity of that domino. The theory of prime numbers on which that answer depends is not a law of physics, nor an, nor an approximation to one. It is about abstractions and infinite sets of them at that, such as the set of natural numbers, one, two, three, etc., etc. 
There is no mystery how we can have knowledge of infinitely large things, like the set of all natural numbers. That is just a matter of reach. Versions of number theory that confined themselves to small natural numbers would have to be so full of arbitrary qualifiers, workarounds, and unanswered questions that they would be very bad explanations until they were generalized to the case that makes sense without such ad hoc restrictions, the infinite case. I shall discuss various sorts of infinity in chapter eight. Skipping just a short paragraph now, and David writes, our own brains are computers, which we can use to learn about things beyond the physical world, including pure mathematical abstractions. This ability to understand abstractions is an emergent property of people, which greatly puzzled the ancient Athenian philosopher Plato. He noticed that the theorems of geometry, such as Pythagoras' theorem, are about entities that are never experienced, perfectly straight lines with no thickness, intersecting each other on a perfect plane to make a perfect triangle. These are not possible objects of any observation, and yet people knew about them, and not just superficially at the time. Such knowledge was the deepest knowledge of anything that human beings had ever had. Where did it come from? Plato concluded that it, and all human knowledge, must come from the supernatural. He was right that it could not have come from observation, but then it could not have even if people had been able to observe perfect triangles, as arguably they could today using virtual reality. As I explained in chapter one, empiricism has multiple fatal flaws, but it is no mystery where our knowledge of abstractions comes from. It comes from conjecture like all our knowledge and through criticism and seeking good explanations. It is only empiricism that made it seem plausible that knowledge outside of science is inaccessible. And it is only the justified true belief misconception that makes such knowledge seem less justified than scientific theories. As I explained in chapter one, even in science, almost all rejected theories are rejected for being bad explanations without ever being tested. Experimental testing is only one of many methods of criticism used in science. And the enlightenment has made progress by bringing those other methods to bear in non-scientific fields as well. The basic reason that such progress is possible is that good explanations about philosophical issues are as hard to find as in science, and criticism is correspondingly effective. I'm skipping a little here, and then, and then he gets into a different class of abstract entities, moral entities. So let's have a read about what he says there. In the case of moral philosophy, the empiricist and justificationist misconceptions are often expressed in the maxim that you can't derive an ought from an is, a paraphrase of a remark by the Enlightenment philosopher David Hume. It means that moral theories cannot be deduced from factual knowledge. This has become conventional wisdom and has resulted in a kind of dogmatic despair about morality. You can't derive an ought from an is, therefore morality cannot be justified by reason. That leaves only two options, either to embrace unreason or to try living without ever making moral judgment. Both are liable to lead to morally wrong choices just as embracing unreason and never attempting to explain the physical world leads to factually false theories and not just ignorance. I'll pause there. So this has been part of the uh, recent uptick in philosophical interest about morality in the popular on, in the online community. We hear Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris talking about exactly the same issue. This idea that because we can't derive an ought from an is, many people choose one of two paths. The first is to head towards unreason. And I think that what we're hinting at here when we come to unreason is a kind of dogma. So you give up trying to improve your theories, you settle on a particular idea, moral code, religious or otherwise, and you refuse to change it. It's a form of unreason. Or 
you move into relativism, where you simply say, I cannot make any moral judgments. And this all stems from this justificationist mistake or empiricist mistake that you can't derive on what from an is. David writes on this in the next paragraph. Certainly, you can't derive an ought from an is, but you can't derive a factual theory from an is either. That is not what science does. The growth of knowledge does not consist of finding ways to justify one's beliefs. It consists of finding good explanations. And although factual evidence and moral maxims are logically independent, factual and moral explanations are not. Thus, factual knowledge can be useful in criticizing moral explanations. For example, in the 19th century, if an American slave had written a best-selling book, that event would not logically have ruled out the proposition Negroes are intended by providence to be slaves. No experience could because that is a philosophical theory. But it might have ruined the explanation through which many people understood that proposition. And if, as a result, such people had found themselves unable to explain to their own satisfaction why it would be providential if that author were to be forced back into slavery, then they might have questioned the account that they had formally accepted of what a black person really is, and what a person in general is, and then a good person, a good society, and so on. Conversely, advocates of highly immoral doctrines almost invariably believe associated factual falsehoods as well. For instance, ever since the attack on the United States on 11 September 2001, millions of people worldwide have believed it was carried out by the US government or the Israeli Secret Service. Those are purely factual misconceptions, yet they bear the imprint of moral wrongness just as clearly as a fossil made of purely inorganic material bears the imprint of ancient life. And the link in both cases is explanation. To correct a moral explanation for why Westerners deserve to be killed indiscriminately, one needs to explain factually that the West is not what it pretends to be. And that requires uncritical acceptance of conspiracy theories, denial of history, and so on. So there, me talking again, there we have this concept about derivation and people are fixated on the idea, especially in morality, about trying to derive moral theories from a set of facts about the real world. But you can't derive you can't derive one from the other. Derivation is very much a logical or mathematical process. If you stay within the domain, within the domain of mathematics, then you can derive the conclusion from the premises given a certain set of rules, given a certain set of rules of inference. That's what mathematics is about, or that's what philosophical logic is about. But observing stuff in the world and then deciding what to do about it isn't a straight line using derivation. You need explanation. Next paragraph has a um, telling phrase. David writes, quite generally, in order to understand the moral landscape in terms of a given set of values, one needs to understand some facts being a certain way as well. And the converse is also true. For example, as the philosopher Jacob Bronowski pointed out, success at making factual scientific discoveries entails a commitment to all sorts of values that are necessary for making progress. The individual scientist has to value truth and good explanations and to be open to ideas and to change. The scientific community, and to some extent the civilization as a whole, has to value tolerance, integrity, and openness of debate. We should not be surprised at these connections. The truth has structural unity as well as logical consistency. And I guess that no true explanation is entirely disconnected from any other. Since the universe is explicable, it must be that morally right values are connected in this way with true factual theories, and morally wrong values with false theories. Moral philosophy is basically about the problem of what to do next, and more generally, what sort of life to lead, and what sort of world to want. 
Some philosophers confine the term moral to problems about how one should treat other people. But such problems are continuous with problems of individuals, choosing what sort of life to lead, which is why I adopt the more inclusive definition. Terminology aside, if you were suddenly the last human on earth, you would be wondering what sort of life to want. Deciding I should do whatever pleases me most would give you very little clue. Because what pleases you depends on your moral judgment of what constitutes a good life and not vice versa. So that's profound. There's a few moral philosophies going around today, or codes of behavior one might say, such as effective altruism. These purport to be explanations of morality that are able to provide a foundation or a framework within which to decide what we should do next. Now, useful as they might be for many situations, the problem is they cannot be an all-encompassing moral philosophy because moral philosophy can't be about how to treat other people. That might be a very small part of moral philosophy, but essentially, as David is saying here, if there were no other people, there'd still be a lot of moral questions. If you were the last person on earth, you'd want to know what you should do next. It wouldn't have anything to do with other people because by definition, there are no other people there. And moral philosophy is also about what kind of life to want. If you're not sure about what to do next, then simply saying that you should do whatever your preferences are is not much use if you don't know what you want to do. And so therefore you can't know what your preferences are. So let's continue. This also illustrates the emptiness of reductionism in philosophy. For if I ask you for advice about what objectives to pursue in life, it is no good telling me to do what the laws of physics mandate. I shall do that in any case. Nor is it any good to tell me what I prefer, because I don't know what I prefer to do until I have decided what sort of life I want to lead or how I should want the world to be. Since our preferences are shaped in this way, at least in part by our moral explanations, it does not make sense to define right and wrong entirely in terms of their utility in meeting people's preferences. Trying to do so is the project of the influential moral philosophy known as utilitarianism, which played much the same role as empiricism did in the philosophy of science. It acted as a liberating focus for the rebellion against traditional dogmas, while its own positive content contained very little truth. So there is no avoiding what to do next problems. And since the distinction between right and wrong appears in our best explanations that address such problems, we must regard that distinction as real. In other words, there is an objective difference between right and wrong. Those are real attributes of objectives and behavior. In chapter 14, I shall argue that the same is true in the field of aesthetics. There is such a thing as objective beauty.